Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Randy Franz as he shares this week's message. Recently, I walked up to two people in a park, sitting in a park, and I told them they had, just, they had broken God's law and they were facing the judgment of God you know, the usual lighthearted icebreakers, something really friendly. And you know how they reacted? They thanked me. Another time recently, I went over and talked to a gentleman. I told him essentially the same thing, that he, he was a lawbreaker in, in God's eyes. He was facing judgment. Well, guess how he reacted? He did the same thing. He thanked me. You might wonder why they didn't just slug me, walk away, think I was nuts or crazy. And I can tell you it's not because I'm some wonderful evangelist, because I'm really smooth-tongued or really smart. It's none of those things. I'm just as uh, challenged to spread the gospel as you are, to evangelize as you are. But the reason these people and others are thankful is because before they hear the good news of Christ's salvation that he offers, they come to understand the bad news of their sin and where that places them. They come to know just how fearful death is without Christ before they hear about his wonderful life-saving news. You see, it's like a criminal isn't grateful for a pardon unless he understands he's guilty of a crime and faces punishment. And so people must understand that they will face God on Judgment Day, and they will be bound for hell for eternity if they haven't repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. But how are they going to do that unless they aren't told the good news of his free gift? And how are they going to recognize it as good news unless they know the bad news of their sin? And how are they going to see their sin as bad news unless it's explained to them that their sin breaks God's moral law? And how are they going to hear it explained unless a believer cares enough to explain it to them? And this is where you and I come into play. This is where we must come into play, in fact. Look around here this morning. How many people are here? And what I mean by that is how many people who don't know the Lord have just come in here because they want to hear about Christ and hear about their sin and hear about the free gift of salvation? How many showed up to listen to this sermon? Probably none. We cannot wait for them to come here. The lost will not just come here all by, their, all by themselves. Each one of us is, in, is entrusted with taking the gospel and God's law to them. We're to proclaim it, we're to preach it, we're to teach it, and we're to share it. And we're to do that with family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, strangers. If we care about people being saved from hell, then anyone and everyone we can meet needs to hear it. 
And I'm sure you've heard a message like this before, the, the message on evangelism, right? Every time a preacher speaks about evangelism, I'm sure in your mind you're saying, you know what? I really plan to share with so-and-so and so-and-so, but I'm just waiting until the time is right. Or you might be thinking of somebody that you love, and man, I really want that person to be a Christian, but they don't want to hear it. I, I just don't know how to, how to talk to them about it. Or I've tried before, and it just hasn't gone well, and so you're reluctant now. I think we've all probably faced that before. So this morning, I'm going to explain an easy way to talk to people about their need for God and how to do it in a way that the people, most people aren't going to want to walk away from you or think you're nuts. They're actually going to want to thank you for telling them how sinful they are. <laughs> Seriously. That's, that's going to be the reaction you get. They will be grateful because nobody else cares enough about them to tell them the truth. And if you don't tell them, who will? And so before we go on, I give you my slight apologies because this message is going to be a little more human-centered than I like. I usually like to, to really focus on the holiness and the grandness and the greatness of God. And, uh, but I feel burdened to share what I've learned about talking to people uh, about the holiness and greatness of God. So please bear with me. Uh, also, I want to just give a little disclaimer. I pulled generously from a ministry called Living Waters, which is a, a, a successful evangelism training based here in Southern California. So that's my little disclaimer. Now, here's the kicker. Uh, when you apply what you hear this morning, uh, not only is God magnified and glorified, which is our purpose here, but you win no matter how a person responds. And so if the person accepts it, God just used you to sow his seed or to water it that was already planted in this person or to germinate it. What an awesome thing to be used by God and his plan of salvation for that individual. What an awesome thing. But if they reject it, just remember they're not rejecting you they are rejecting Christ. And when this happens, God actually says, you are blessed. He says in Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How about that? We're blessed even in that circumstance. So we have nothing to lose and the person that you're talking with has everything to gain, which is the title of this message. And so I guarantee you will be encouraged this morning uh, to be God's instrument to opening people's eyes to their need for Christ. Especially in this day and age, uh, I don't, probably don't have to tell you, but we can't assume a person has even a basic working knowledge of, of the Bible, of the scriptures. Uh, we're now well into two generations of people, maybe three, who have not had much exposure to the Bible in schools, uh, in our culture, it's been pushed to the margins. Uh, universities are clearly hostile to Christianity, so uh, ignorance of even basic Bible teaching is at an all-time high. So take heart. You are coming to them 
with the truth, and people are craving to know the truth because it's actually been shielded from them in many ways. And so people are craving it. They don't know what the truth is. The truth is scripture. God's word is truth. Jesus Christ is truth. And so deliver it to them with love, with urgency, because this is our purpose. This is really our calling. And so this is your impact on the world for eternity. Now, we are to approach evangelism. We're going to approach it in God's way, which is primarily law before gospel. Law before gospel. And when I refer to law, that conjures up many things, but I want to be clear that we're not dealing with ceremonial or, or the civil law that governed the, na- the ancient nation of Israel. We're talking about God's moral law, which is embodied in the Ten Commandments. We'll see how Jesus uses the commandments, as does the Apostle Paul, to show people their need for a Savior. And, that, and that's really, that's the key, is showing people their need for a Savior. That's what's going to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ that they're not going to walk away from. And so here are a few examples. These are are the way Jesus did it. We look at Luke 18 and Mark 10. It's the story of the rich young ruler. It's a well-known story. When a rich man goes to Jesus and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus does not tell him, well, son, you've got a God-shaped hole in your heart that only I can fill. He does not tell Jesus to follow him because he has a wonderful plan for his life. Nope. Jesus responds with, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So what we see here is Jesus first corrects the man's misunderstanding. Only God is completely good. No human being by nature is good. We're racked by sin. So is this young man ready to acknowledge Jesus as God, first of all? So then having done that, Jesus takes him right into the teeth of the moral law. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Right straight from the Ten Commandments. Well, incredibly, the man says he's kept all of these since his youth, which actually may have broken the ninth of the Ten Commandments, which is, you shall not lie. So Jesus tells him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Well, we know the story at that, the the man goes away sad because clearly his gods are material things, which actually you know, breaks the first two commandments, have no other gods before me, and you shall make no graven images. So that man is in big trouble. Another example, Luke 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. This time a lawyer comes up to to Jesus and asks the same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, again, quickly takes him right to the commandments. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He goes right to the law. And from there, Jesus goes on to show the man that he is insincere by trying to justify himself, even though he's a sinner just like everyone else. 
And again, Jesus shows a person his need for mercy through knowledge of the law. That's what, that's what he's doing there. And then we see in John 4, the story of the woman at the well, how after engaging a woman in conversation, Jesus swings to her breaking of the seventh commandment, which is do not commit adultery. Well, far from being angered at Jesus' accusation, the woman admits it, gives Jesus respect, and then ends up going and telling others about Christ. And so Jesus provides us examples here of effective biblical evangelism. And the apostles Peter and Paul, or Paul does the same thing, and Peter, we can get that same thing from Peter, I'll explain in a minute. But Paul explains in Romans 2 how telling another person of the law brings the knowledge of sin. In Romans 2.21, he, he says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you not steal? And then Paul later was speaking to Jews in Rome. In the book of Acts, chapter 28, it's written, From morning till evening, he, being Paul, expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So only when the law has done its work on a person is it time to give them the gospel. And Peter gives us a great example of this in Acts 2. He's speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost. He knows they already know the law. They know it intimately. This is, the law is what made the the Jews unique and special, but it also is what created burdens. So Peter doesn't beat them down with burdens of the law. He goes right to the gospel, showing them why Jesus is the Messiah and calling them to repentance and faith in Christ for salvation. So the law before gospel, remember this, remember this, the law before gospel, it is the key to successful biblical evangelism. Now, this may seem a little bit odd because it's not the way modern evangelism has been for decades. Modern evangelism has kind of devolved into telling people the good news without making them fully aware of the bad news. That's why we see a large percentage of so-called Christian converts leaving the church or being drawn to churches that, that just tell them all the things that they want to hear. We think of the prosperity gospel as one example. In modern evangelism, there's no room for the law because modern evangelism focuses on a person's feelings. The emphasis is what a person gets out of it. Not, It doesn't emphasize humility and gratitude for God's mercy in saving a sinful wretch like me. Even though Scripture takes great pains to describe God's Moral law is good, holy, righteous, and perfect. Teachers of modern evangelism tend to see it differently. We're no longer under the law, but under grace, it's often said. And in a large sense, this is true. However, God's moral law has not changed. It is good, holy, righteous, and perfect. It is not a barrier to the gospel. The law leads a person directly to the gospel. 
Now, it is worth asking, are we really still under the law? Doesn't the new covenant supersede the Old Testament law? Didn't Jesus fulfill the law? Don't we fall into quote-unquote legalism by focusing on keeping the law? Let's see what the New Testament has to say about that. John writes in 1 John 2.4, Whoever says, I know him, being Jesus, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. In Romans 7.12, the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, the law is holy. God's commandments are righteous and good. Paul also writes in 1 Timothy 1.8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Galatians 3.24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. I want to show you the Greek word for guardian connotes a tutor who is strictly a guide to guide a child into, like escort the child into adulthood to Christ. And so the law is a tutor that shows a person his or her sin and then escorts them to Christ. That's what's meant by that. And Paul even says, the Apostle Paul even says in Romans 7, 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. You wouldn't have even known it except for the law. Now these are all in the New Testament. These are not from the Old Testament. The law is a tutor, a guardian, or sometimes called a schoolmaster that shows us our sin, and it's still the governing agent, the moral governing agent that indicates how imperfect we are. We're not as perfect as we think. This is what opens people's eyes to their need for a savior. I would ask you, how powerful is the moral law that's written into each one of our hearts? It's written into the heart of each person. Look at Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Other translations have it converting the soul or restoring the soul. In other words, God's law is so good and holy, it's perfect. And as such, it alone brings a person to the point, to that point which they'll accept the precious saving gospel of Jesus Christ's salvation. And they'll not only accept it, but they'll receive it They'll appropriate it. They'll see it as fundamental and necessary for life and eternity. And so a person must be broken before he or she will set their pride aside and look to God for his answer. The law brings humility, and humility opens the heart and the mind. Only people on their knees can rise. You think of a student who's kind of a know-it-all. She doesn't listen to her teacher because she doesn't think she needs to. It's only after she has shown that she, off, that she gets the answers wrong that she begins to pay attention. Listen to what these uh, esteemed Christian evangelists have said. English preacher Charles Spurgeon said, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. For the law, this is great, listen to this. For the law is the needle, and you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart until you first send the law to make way for it. 
Theologian Sinclair Ferguson said, incorporating law into the gospel presentation does many things. It primarily shows the sinner that he is a criminal and that God is his judge. Serious. Pastor teacher David Cloud said, the ground of the soul must be tilled with the sharp plow of God's law so that it can receive the seed of the gospel. Good imagery. Pastor Tim Keller said, it is only because of the doctrine of judgment and hell, the law, that Jesus' proclamation of grace and love are so brilliant and astounding. And so we must make people aware that God's wrath abides on sinners. He will exact judgment. Sin is abhorrent to God. It's so abhorrent that its payment is death. Every sinner has a death sentence awaiting him or her. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Hell. It's a real capital punishment that never ends, by the way. And this is what we deserve. We earn this by our sin. In fact, do you know what death is in the Bible? It's wages. Remember the famous verse, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23? Death is what we earn. It's what is due to us for our sin. By the way, this is a great way to share that with, with an unbelieving friend, by the way. I'll blow them away. So we have two standards. We have man's standard and God's standard. God's standard is the law. And when we... When we compare ourselves to each other, man's standards, we aren't so bad. It's easy to say, well, I might have told a few lies and I might have broken a few of the commandments, but everyone does that. I'm a lot better than people I know. Or they can trot out Hitler or various people who are notorious criminals. But that's using man's standard. That's not how we will be judged when we stand before God. The God of the universe judges us on his standard, which is Holiness, righteousness, perfection, it's so much loftier than God's standards. We can't even imagine. Death is the clue that God is serious about sin. Whereas we tend to think lightly of it. We tend to think, yeah, a little bit of theft, lying, stealing, blasphemy, all these things, no big deal. In God's eyes, though, it's so serious, it demands death. And showing a person that God's standard is infinitely higher than man's standards, it starts to make them reevaluate their goodness. And it becomes apparent very quickly to a person that they have not been holy or righteous or perfect. In fact, the law literally stops people from touting their own goodness. Look at what it says in Romans 3.19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Did you catch that? Every mouth may be stopped. God's law literally stops people from talking. More accurately, it stops them from bragging about themselves. Because in one breath, you say you're a good person, and in man's eyes, you probably are, but in God's eyes, in the law, you aren't even close and when shown that the one whom they'll face on judgment day knows every sin they've ever committed 
every sin they've ever even thought, their jaw goes slack. Their tongue goes silent, and their mouth is stopped from justifying themselves. It's incredibly powerful. Now, it may take a few repeated reminders for that to sink in, because people are proud, just like we were. And they will look for excuses to justify their sin. But remember that God's word, were never, God's word never returns void. It always works in and on a person. All we have to do is present it. Okay, let's switch gears here. We're going to move into the more practical aspect of giving the law and the gospel. This involves addressing the conscience over the intellect. The intellect is the place of argument. This tends to put up walls. Whereas addressing the conscience is incredibly effective. It cuts right into the heart of every person. Um, I've heard it said conscience means with knowledge, con being with, science knowledge. God has given every person a conscience. You and I have a conscience. We know that. To know right from wrong. Every single person is built, it's built within us, just like God's law. He has written his law on, on our hearts. It's built into us. Even the person who has no exposure to Scripture or the things of Christ, no knowledge of John 3.16 or the Ten Commandments, they know right from wrong. The person knows it's wrong to murder, wrong to commit adultery, wrong to steal, wrong to dishonor your parents. That's why God says all people have no excuse when they stand before him to face, their, to face judgment, no matter where they're from. Doesn't matter if they live their whole lives in a, in a Muslim home or if they're from an aboriginal tribe in Australia. God says in Romans 1, should be on the board, God says what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. It's plain to them, clearly perceived, they are without excuse. That's every person we come across. Okay. So here's our application. We give the law to the proud. We give the gospel of grace to the humble. Give the law to the proud person. Give the gospel of grace to the humble. Now, when I told you earlier that I walked up to people in a park and told them they had broken God's law, they were sinners facing God's judgment, I guarantee you that's not how I started the conversation. That's not the way to keep a conversation going, believe me. What I did, I started with the very thing that you were handed this morning, that really cool-looking million-dollar bill. It's a gospel tract. So we start, if you don't know where to start with a person, start with a gospel tract. A million-dollar bill is a great way to do it. You just reach out with them. Did you get one of these? Don't ask them if they want one of these, because most people kind of go, I don't want it. Just say, did you get one of these? It's amazing. Just reflexively, most people will just take it. 
Just tell them it's a gospel tract. It's a million-dollar bill with the million-dollar question on the back. Guaranteed, they're very curious, first of all, to get a million-dollar bill. Secondly, what's this million-dollar question? And so just tell them it's a gospel tract. Uh, Have you ever received one before? Do you have a Christian background? These are not offensive questions in any way. You're not preaching to the person. You're not telling them anything. You're simply asking about their favorite subject, which is them. And so as soon as you mention the gospel, you've called it a gospel tract. Now is key number two, swing to spiritual things. Once you've done that, you say, what do you think happens to a person after he after she dies or he dies? Or do you believe there's an afterlife? Or do you think you'll go to heaven after you die? So you've already swung to the spiritual when you've mentioned it's a gospel tract. Maybe you've asked them if they've ever received one before or if they have a Christian background. You've already swung the conversation there. And so now, just ask them about their opinion. What do they think? Do you think you will go to heaven after you die? If they say yes, ask why. If they say no, ask why. What do you think will happen? And listen to what they say. From there, we go to number three. You address their conscience via the moral law with the Ten Commandments. Address their conscience. And this is, this is incredibly effective. It's not hard to get to this point. And when you do, you simply say, well, do you think you're a good person? Do you think you're a good person? What do most people say? Yes, they are just just itching to say yes, to tell you how good they are. So then just ask them, okay, mind if I ask you a few questions to see if it's true, based on God's standards, which is the Ten Commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Most people say yes. Well, what does that make you? A liar, but most people will stop short of that. They'll say, mm, sinner or human. I'm just a human like everybody tells lies. So you say, well, what would you call a person who tells lies? A liar. Okay, well, what are you? And then they're stuck. A liar. Okay, you've admitted you're a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Anything. Could be small. At any time in your life, have you taken something that's not yours, irrespective of the value? Yes. Okay, what does that make you? A thief. No, you're not. You're a lying thief. And you usually get a, get a little chuckle. So, again, this, people will respond to this. They, they're, not, they're, they're being held to account because their conscience starts working. Have you ever used God's name in vain? And the answer, Yes. Explain to them that this is blasphemy. It's a very serious sin. In fact, it's punishable by death in the Old Testament. And at this point, if you sense that they're getting a little bit uh, beaten down, just be, be gracious with them. Hey, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your patience. I've only got one more. Jesus said, you have heard it, heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a person with lust has committed adultery with her in his heart. Have you ever looked at a person with lust? The answer is usually yes. So you say, John, or whoever their name is, 
I'm not judging you. This is for you to judge yourself. But you've told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer at heart. So if you stand before God on Judgment Day, and he judges you based on the Ten Commandments, we've looked at four of them, will you be innocent or guilty? Guilty. Heaven or hell? Hell. Does that concern you? If that concerns them, they are ready for the gospel. If that doesn't concern, concern them, earnestly plead with them. Why not? You've admitted to breaking God's law. God says all liars will have their place in the lake of fire. No thieves, no, blasphemer, no blasphemers, no adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. I am greatly concerned for you. You're in grave danger. I just met you, but I don't want you to wind up in hell. I care about you, even though I just met. I'm not asking you to join a church. What's my motive? I'm not looking for money. But if you died in your sins tonight, you would go to hell. I don't want that to happen to you. My only motive is to tell you about God's wonderful mercy and how you can have everlasting life. Please think about this with urgency. You're trying to impress upon them to let them understand their, their grave need for Christ. You haven't shared the gospel with them yet. You're just trying to open their eyes to their position, to their standing. Now, going back, if a person, if you say, would you be innocent or guilty of breaking God's commands, if they say they'd be innocent, it's usually because they say they've done a lot of good things or they've done more good than bad, or God will see that that was way in the past and, and they've changed. And so you can let them know, you know what you're doing? You're justifying yourself. Whatever good you've done has nothing to do with the fact that you're guilty of breaking God's law. If you're in a court of law because you rat robbed a bank, beat up the security guard, and you tell the judge, well, Your Honor, yeah, I've done a lot of good things in my life, so I think you should let me go. That judge, is, if he's a good judge, he'll say, what are you talking about? You robbed a bank, you assaulted a guard. Whatever you've done before that, has no bearing on the crimes you've committed. You're guilty. You're going away. And he'll sentence you for punishment. So you presented the gospel tract. You've swung to, to spiritual things. You've addressed his or her conscience. They've admitted they're guilty before God. It concerns them that they might be headed for hell. So now you present the gospel. An easy, simple presentation can, can be just something like this. Do you know what God did so guilty sinners like you and I don't have to go to hell? It's a, it's, a, it's a very penetrating question. Do you know what God did so guilty sinners like you and I don't have to go to hell? Well, some will mention something about Jesus. They might have heard about a sacrifice, God sending his son to die on a cross, and just respond, many know that. But most don't know this. The Ten Commandments are called God's moral law. You and I broke God's moral law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. Do you know what Jesus said right before he died? He said, it is finished. Kind of a strange thing 
for someone to say right before they die, but that means the debt has been paid. Jesus has paid our fine in full. It's finished. Going back to the court of law, if you're in a court of law and Jesus and the judge says, John, there's a stack of fines here that you've racked up. This is deadly serious. You've earned a long sentence in jail, but somebody has paid your fine. You're free to go. The judge can let you go and can legally let you go free. In the same way, God can legally set a person free from hell because Jesus paid the fine. He can do that which is legal and right and just because he's a God of goodness, righteousness, and justice. And what you have to do is repent and trust in Christ. Trust in his death for payment for your sin and his resurrection to new life, which the Bible says he offers to you as a free gift. In fact, the Bible says it was impossible for death to hold him. So, repeating, the two things you have to do are to repent, and repent is to turn from your sin, not just confess your sin, not just say I'm sorry, but repent, to turn away from it, to forsake it, So repent and then trust in Jesus. Those are the two things. And the moment you do that, and again, you're addressing this person, the moment you do that genuinely, God promises, and God cannot lie, so you can trust him. He promises to remit every sin you've ever committed and grant you everlasting life. And he does this because of his mercy. He will give you new desires, a new heart, This is being born again. This is what being born again is. You won't be perfect, but sin will lose its sting. And when you stand before him on judgment day, God will look on you with favor because he sees Christ's righteousness to you. He does not see your sin anymore. Wow, it's incredible. So when you're telling that to the person, ask them, does this make sense? So you've shared the gospel. You've shared where they stand before him. You've shared the good news that Jesus paid our fine. God will remit every sin. Make sure that they understand that. If they don't, go back through it again. A little clearer, a little slower for them. Make sure that they understand it. Now, I want to emphasize, we don't have to close the deal, so to speak. Okay? We present the law, we present the gospel, and we let the word and God do the work on a person's heart. That's where the power is. Thank them for listening. Thank them for speaking to you. And that may be the way you close. Leave them with a a little bit of a pamphlet or literature. But if you sense the person is very responsive, they're moved by their need for God's uh, salvation, they... By all means, ask them if they want to repent and trust in Christ, and if they say yes, offer to pray a short prayer with them, by all means. But when you are speaking with a person, don't feel like you have to close the deal. Let God's word work on them. And then always ask at the end of your your, uh, conversation with them, do they have a Bible at home? Do they have a Bible? Encourage them to read it. A good place to start is the book of John, if they don't know where to start. It's a great, great place. You can offer them a a booklet or a pamphlet that you have. I would recommend the Gospel Primer, which somebody here has promoted quite often. Uh, We have them here if you want to get them. 
Uh, it's just a nice little booklet. Uh, a non-believer will, will, it's in plain English, it's got biblical references, and I'm a gospel primer. Now, if they're kind of wishy-washy about well, the, whether they'll think about God's, God's provision of mercy, if they're not quite sure, well, yeah, I might think about it. And Try to instill a sense of urgency. Just like I'm in trying to instill a sense of urgency in you today to present the law and the gospel because every single day, every 24-hour period, 160,000 people die. Let that number sink in a little bit. Every day, every day the city of Orange dies. Plus 20,000 more people, by the way. Now everyone thinks it's going to be somebody else. But the reality is death is right around the corner, no matter who it is and no matter how old they are. Aneurysms, car accidents, heart attacks. No one thinks it'll happen to them. You don't know when it'll happen to you. That person you're talking with doesn't know when it'll happen to them. So don't wait. Don't wait to present the law and the gospel. Even if it's a little uncomfortable, it may be your only chance. Take that opportunity. Do it. Make the opportunity. It may be uncomfortable, but I've got a newsflash. Your life is not about you, actually. It's about... It's not about whether others accept you and like you or make you feel good. Our lives are hidden with Christ. He gives us breath so that we can be his ambassadors. You and I live so that we can make much of him. Remember the, remember the example of John the Baptist who said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. You must have that same mindset. Now, I'll grant you, this can be difficult because we generally don't want anything to mess with our, our good relationships, do we? Our, our relationships with friends, particularly. That's why they're friends. <laughs> um, conflict doesn't help. It's the same with family. Who wants to create division within a family? But the scriptures have many many admonitions to set aside those concerns. And among them is this startling contrast in Luke 14, 26, Ben. You can put that up. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, our love of God must take precedence over every other human relationship. Christ's disciples must love their human family less than they love Jesus Christ. That's what this verse is saying. And then Luke 9, 23 and 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We are to deny ourselves. Think about it. Even Jesus' own family opposed him before recognizing his true identity. Jesus' primary uh, motivation was not keeping that family relationship good at the expense of pleasing his father, and neither should we. 
And of course, the command to spread the gospel isn't a radical. I'm not bringing you a radical new message this morning. Jesus said it. He said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Paul said it. How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are those who preach the good news? That's a statement, by the way, not a question. So in closing, let me ask, do you love people enough to rescue them from a burning building? Or will you stand by and do nothing? Each of us probably walks by thousands of people every day, week, month, year. How often do we see a person and we think about his or her soul and where they are going to wind up? And when, we think, when you think that every single person, every unbeliever is in terrible danger, is destined for the lake of fire, for eternity, how much do we have to dislike them or hate them not to share the good news without telling them? In fact, a famous entertainer, a non-believer, has made that saying popular. How much do we have to hate a non-believer to walk past them without saying anything? Instead, show them the precipice they're on. Beg of them to see their need for God's mercy. We don't have a secret to keep. We have the good news. We have the best news, the greatest news, the free gift of salvation for eternity. So remember, you have nothing to lose, and the person you're talking with has everything to gain. As the worship team comes up, would you please pause and consider how God has given us his moral law to drive us into the loving, merciful arms of Jesus. Let God's law do the work in people as you take them through a few of the commandments. And be prepared when you do for people to be grateful and to thank you that you took the time to explain it to them. Now may God make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious unto you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your your precious, perfect law, the law of liberty, the fact that you have taken time to communicate with us, to show us how good you are and what you have done for people, to show us our need for you, and that you, you sent your Son to die on the cross for us, to pay our fine so that when we stand before you on Judgment Day, you do not see our sin. We see Jesus' perfect holiness and righteousness and purity. Lord, we cannot be thankful enough for that. I pray that here at Orange Villa Bible Church, Father, that we would long to, we would delight to be your ambassadors, that that we love to speak with people about you. We share their law, your law with them so that they can see their need for you. Father, we pray that, uh, that you would open our eyes as to how best to do that, that you would prepare people that we are 
already planning to speak with, and then strangers that you bring into our, our path. Father, would you soften their hearts? Would you open their eyes? For we know that the work that's being done is yours, that you are preparing people, that you are moving in their hearts, that it's your word that has the power. We thank you for every individual you brought here this morning. I pray, too, for those who could not be here for uh, either through sickness or because of travel. Father, would you please protect them and hold them and guide them? And Lord, when, when we leave here this morning, I pray that we are emboldened and, and uh, enlightened to share your word, to proclaim the gospel, but first to show them their need for it. We thank you and praise you and ask for your blessing upon us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.